it's a very, very special day at Homophilia headquarters. We've opened the floodgates to some of our favorite straight allies and icons. And I mean, I don't know, maybe this is a whole new direction. Maybe we're only going to talk to our favorite straight people from now on. Who knows? Listen, there's a lot of them. Yeah. But today's guest is a very special one, a very dear friend of mine. She's a writer and a podcaster. And I believe the title is Empowerment Mentor for Dog People, which we'll obviously get into. Uh, Overall animal person. She's a host of the podcast, The Animal That Changed You. My beloved Katya Litsky, hello. Thank you for being here. Hi, I'm so glad to be here. I'm taking all pitches for what to call myself. So, you know, it doesn't have to be Empowerment Mentor. Help me. Empowerment Mentor is a very strong choice, though. Those are not words that you see in that order very often. It's striking. Mm -hmm. It makes you stop and pay attention. Can you describe what it is that you do? Yeah. Yeah, I can. And Dave, I just want to say before it was a life coach for dog people. Okay. But I didn't feel right about that either because not everybody wants a life coachy life coach. No. But who doesn't want to be empowered? Who doesn't want to be empowered? Mm, Yes. Thank you for making me feel better about my choices. And who doesn't need a mentor? I need one. Right? Everybody needs a mentor. I actually do need a life coach. And I'm, part of me is a little disappointed that you've shifted away from that. But there's still life coaching to be had, I believe. Oh, yeah. In, in your services. I mean, here's the thing. I think that I would attract more of a woo-woo type of person. And I say that with love. Sure. Like me. <laughs> the street corner is like where dog behavior meets mindfulness. Where dog behavior meets self-help where dog behavior meets healing. Uh, So Mm. I don't get homophilia listeners who are the best people around. Tell me what I am. I don't have a set name yet, people, but I don't think. I'm telling you, Empowerment Mentor is a great place to start and potentially stop. I'm going to lean in then because I I don't want to tell people that this is how to train a dog. I don't like the term dog trainer. Mm -hmm. I'd rather hear how you feel, how you live, where you want to go, what your expectations are, and why. And how can we make those feelings possible in your life now? And then you change in tandem with your dog. And then you bond. And when you bond, your dog's going to choose to behave. You're not going to have to force your dog. Your dog is going to choose to uphold the bond you have, just like you are. Okay, well, you now have a new client, but we'll discuss (laughs) that later. Before we start, who was the animal who changed you? Mm. Matt knew her very well. Um, the animal who changed me was a beagle puppy named Ophelia, who's pictured behind me. I have somewhat of a shrine to her. Yeah. Oh, I see Ophelia. She was my first rescue, and I rescued her at a puppy. She was a parvo puppy, mm. so she almost didn't make it. And I had her for 17 years. And she is the reason that I do this work and why I started to volunteer at the animal shelter and why I love dogs and why I eat the way I eat and write what I write and advocate. My whole life is possible because of the relationship I had with her. She totally saved my life. She was very sassy, very classy, and I needed her, but she didn't really need me. (laughs) That's what we were dealing with. Uh, That's not true, but I mean, yeah, she was an absolute queen. And I have never been less proud to be straight as I am hearing the intro about how straight I am. (laughs) But I will say that Matt McConkie spent quite a time with Ophelia and would 
house sit, dog sit, and would say to me, I'm confused. I don't know what I am because Ophelia and I are, we're in bed maybe making love. Yeah, there was just like Mm -hmm. such a romantic connection. Like we would just gaze into each other's eyes and it was like, I've never been looked at like this by any human, regardless of species or gender. But that was the power of Ophelia. Mm. Ophelia is with us in this moment. I feel her very strongly. Thank you for saying that. I feel you, Ophelia, as Katya always says. I feel you. I I mean, obviously I want to talk a lot more about Ophelia and all things dogs, but just to back us up a little bit katya you're coming to us live from your home in austin texas you're the mother of two i don't know human muppets uh, (laughs) the cutest uh, girls that have ever lived ever walked the face of this earth what are you watching in your household at the moment what's keeping you entertained okay we're deep into better things pam pam adlon's better things oh yeah which i never appreciated before I mean, she's extraordinary, extraordinary and a palate cleanser because I was watching Blackbird, Mm. which was recommended to me by my mother, Blackbird about a serial killer of girls. So I'm still unpacking like why my mom thought this was something to recommend. Why? I don't know why I, it was, it was so good and so scary and I highly recommend it. It's with Taryn Edgerton. Oh, right. Hmm. Oh, oh, yeah, the Apple Joe. Yes, yes, yes Apple. Yes. And Greg Kinnear. And then the guy who plays mm. the killer is the most incredible thing I've seen on TV in a million years. It's, it's really, really good. Hmm. Interesting. However, much too heavy for this movie. <laughs> yeah. And then you're you're neutralizing that with some better things. With to, some yeah, better washing things. Washing it down. Yeah, and reboot. You know, whenever it comes out, we're deep into the reboot. We need a cleanser. Yeah, you always yeah. need a good cleanser. Okay. I think you're approaching television in exactly the right way. And I want to commend you and acknowledge you for that. That was life coach speak. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Empowerment mentor speak, if you will. Mm -hmm. Can I Mm -hmm. ask what you guys are watching? Because you're so good at like keeping me up to speed every time I listen to an episode. Oh my God. I will take you right to the dumpster with my choices. Bachelor in Paradise. Mm. Okay. I'm not proud of it, but it's paradise season. And it might be the most dramatic Bachelor in Paradise season ever. The thing that we go immediately to is, do you remember the show Night Flight on the USA Network? It was late night on Friday and Saturday nights. There is now an app for the Apple TV. It is called Night Flight Plus. I think it's like five bucks a month. And it's, it's an app that has not only like a ton of the weird old movies that they used to play and then hundreds more, like crazy cult films and punk documentaries and weird things like that. They also have a whole bunch of old episodes of Night Flight, some of them with the original commercials. So you're watching, you know, oh, wow. a video from, you know, the Scorpions, and then it's then it's a Juicy Fruit commercial that you remember from 1984. That's why. Yeah, they just, um, they are promoting now their 1987 sixth anniversary special hosted by Judy Tenuta. So of course we had to get in there and spend some time on a petite flower. So yeah, that's, we're kind of just, we're going for pure nostalgia and joy. And I'm sure the Dahmer thing is great, but it's going to have to wait for a much rosier time in American history. You're inspiring me though to to get into that app. Yeah, Night Flight Plus. And then there's also uh, in it, there, there are two. There's one that's all just music videos, like current and old and everything. And then one is cult films and and weird, you know, just weird stuff that they have found. And it's just, it's like a TV channel that's always on. You you know, you can watch stuff 
like streaming on demand, or you can turn on this night flight TV and it's just whatever they're playing. Like cable TV used to be. I don't know. It's soothing in many ways. Matt, you'll have much more higher minded. No, God, no. I mean, you've always got the deepest cuts and the coolest recommendations. And I'm always just like, I'm watching all the Housewives shows, which, you know, is not for either of you, which I respect. I I mean, The Good Fight on Paramount Plus, can't say it enough. Best show on TV. And Atlanta on FX. It's incredible. And I'm still watching The Handmaid's Tale. I'm alone and it's... You know, it's not a fun place to be. But at this point, I just feel like I must see this through to the of end. Of course, of course. That's how Jesus we were with Ozark. Us. We had a lot of feelings. You know, we had a lot of opinions. But we were like, at this point, we do need to know what's going to happen. Like, yeah. regardless of how we feel, it doesn't matter. Sure, sure. Can you, Matt, just explain to those of us who are on the margins of the Housewives universe, what's going on with Kathy Hilton? I understand there's there's drama, but we don't fully know what the drama is. Yeah, I mean, so much and so little is happening mm-hmm. at the same time uh, as usual in the Housewives universe. But, you know, Kathy has been a beloved friend of uh, cast member the last few couple seasons, meaning she's not... Uh, she doesn't hold the diamond, as we say. She's not a like a, a series regular, but she's coming in, you know, in most of the episodes. And she became quickly a fan favorite on a trip to Aspen. Kathy w- went to a club and lost her shit and m- may or may not have thrown out some racial slurs and homophobic slurs. That, I guess, remains to be seen. But Lisa Rinna is the only person who apparently really heard it. And she is now reporting it back to everyone and talking about how cruel Kathy's tirade was and driving a wedge between Kathy and her sister, Kyle Richards. So it's been explosive. And the question sort of remains like, did Lisa Renna just do this because she needed to launch a storyline to get her, her contract renewed or is Kathy Hilton actually secretly evil? I believe both things are true. Yeah, yeah. I think they're all kind of evil on Front Street. I don't think that there's any secret to them all being a little bit psychotic, right? Sure, sure. I mean, Kathy really is someone who has really come across as just like a harmless, lovable kook. Uh And it it was just kind of like fun to watch because it felt like, oh, she's so she's so rich and disconnected from reality. And she means no harm. So now we're kind of like seeing that there is maybe a an actual dark side there. But anyway, Katya, because this is homophilia, and uh, as I said, you're you're one of our beloved allies and icons. What is your earliest memory of like an awareness of gay people? Oh, my aunt, hands down, my aunt, my mom's sister. There's this word in Spanish, Matt, I'm sorry, I have to bring it up again. You've heard me talk about this word a million times, but there's this word in Spanish, lastima. When you say me lastime, it means like I hurt myself. I, you know, I got a little cut. But when you say que lastima, it kind of means like, oh, what a pity or oh. But when you say like tengo lastima, it means like to me anyway, someone else's feeling has jumped off of their body and is now in me. And I'm walking in their shoes. I'm be I've I've shapeshifted and I've become you. We are carrying whatever you're carrying together. I feel it with you. 
I have uncontrollable lastima. And my aunt was one of the first people who understood that about me and also simultaneously gave me the most lastima as a child because she's nine years younger than my mom. We're Cuban Jews. She's a lesbian and she was shunned by her father. My mom, who I love and we're, you know, it's the, the woman of my life had a very hard time untethering herself from expectations of what she wanted for her sister versus what her sister's life was. And so my aunt would come visit us from Miami and in Laredo, Texas, and be like, everything was just like so cool and everything was like so fun. She's the kind of person who traveled like a boogie board, which destroyed me. And I knew at a young age that she was free of what everyone else had going on about her. That's the best way I can put it. Like everyone else had an issue, but she didn't, but I didn't know why. And she would do the funniest things. Like I can be quite talkative. She would like pay me 20 bucks to shut up for an hour. Like she would pay me 20 bucks to stop asking her to play Barbies. Like she just like got me and made it funny that I was me as opposed to like being this chain of like continuing this family thread of you have to be what people in this family expect you to be. You have to, the cost of admission is the way we want you. So that was my first profound. Yeah. She's amazing. And you know, at this point in her sixties and still like travels with a boogie board, like cool. Yeah. Like everything's a party. Everything's fun. She's, she wants to feel good. Everyone sort of thought that was like so silly and so immature and ridiculous. And all this time I'm like, that, why shouldn't she? Yeah, yeah, she might have had the right idea all along. She did. And will you just talk a little more about your family's kind of origin story? We were talking recently about your mom coming over specifically. I, and this is sort of a side tangent I'm asking you to go on, but it's just such a great story. Yeah, it's weird. I mean, we're, I would say, probably super Eastern European Jewish by like way, way back, but my grandparents all fled anti-Semitism, which as they always told me, like didn't begin in 1940. I'm like, oh God, when, okay, it's been forever. Um, That was a young memory. But so they couldn't get into America and, and ended up in Havana, their parents. So my grandparents were born in Cuba. My parents were born in Cuba. So we're sort of like Cuban by default, but like not the best choice, like fleeing persecution. Like here we are now we're in Cuba dealing with Batista's government. And then Castro came into power and the way my parents both put it as Cuban Jews, it was like, they knew immediately. Like it was like, Oh, oh no, no. Like blood, like in the cells, the family at large, like the Jewish community at large was like, we, now we leave. My mom, it was like a Monday, she was working with her uh, English tutor and her father said, Jenny's going to America. And she's how old? Nine, nine years old. And my mom was like, which, who, which Jenny? And he was like, you, (laughs) you going. And Friday she was there by the end of that week. She was nine years old. She left by herself. I asked her recently what she was holding. I was like, were you on a plane? She was on a plane. She drank a Coke. She was holding a cuqueta, which is what they call dolls. Nine years old, curly hair, chubby, landed in America to an aunt she hardly knew and cousins who were teenagers, very Americanized, and was there for about 
three or four months by herself before her mother and her new baby sister, the Amarilene, who ended up gay, mm-hmm. thank God, because she showed me how to be free. <laughs> she was forced to be free, you know, or not be herself. They came and met my mom and yeah, but my mom, like Friday, she arrived, Monday had to go to school, like in Miami. I mean, it's trauma. It's a, it's a trauma that she deals with by being like, oh my God, Julia Roberts is gorgeous. And I'm like, can, can we talk about the trauma? Uh, no, the answer is we cannot. And never wants to go back to Cuba. Doesn't want any, just nothing. Her dad had a harder time coming. And oh my God, I'm so, I'm sorry. I just have to complete this story because I just found Jeez. this out. And now my husband and I are writing about it because it's now an obsession. My grandfather, I always thought that yeah, him and my grandmother had like a very passionate relationship. Like they would get into a fight, throw plates across the room, and then they'd be slow dancing. Like it was like, mm-hmm. where where are we on the spectrum? The spectrum is very wide. If they made $300, they spent 500 They were the life of the party. He was very vain. Always wore cologne and shirt open, you know, gold chains. Yes. He was a gorgeous man. But Abuelo Enrique, I always thought that he came so much later because he was like, I don't want to be with my wife and kids. That's not what happened. And then I was like, oh, maybe he just, you know, men were really tethered with business and stuff. Also not what happened. Here's what happened. In order for my mom to go and then his wife and second daughter to go to Miami, he sold his car to have the money. And when he went to leave, he was at the airport in Havana. They being Fidel Castro's men were like, Enrique Grant, yeah, where's your car? And he was like, I sold it so we could. And he was like, yeah, but you can't sell it because it belongs to the state. So we own all your things. Oh, God. So your car is really our car. And he was like, oh, I know, but okay, I didn't know. Okay, but I actually don't have the car. And they were like, well, then you can't leave. So he spent another two months traveling Cuba to find his car. It's like, dude, where's my car in Cuba? It was 1960. And he went to the person who sold it who had lent it to someone. So then he had to drive to like a beach town. Who did he drive with? I don't have clear answers. He didn't have a car, so he rode with someone. And then then when he went to the person they lent it to, they didn't have it. It was in a shop. So then he had to go find the car in the shop. It took him two months to buy back his car, to take it to the airport, to turn it in so he could join his family. God, it's such a good story. It's crazy. Wow. The fascinating stories about your family are endless, but I wanted to give people a taste. And I want to talk about dogs, obviously. And I I feel like a good way to give people sort of a Katya 101 and just a primer on like what dogs mean to you is actually to talk about your old solo show, I'm Sorry. I know it's strange to talk about. It's like we're going to promote a show here that people cannot go see. But (laughs) I'd still love for you just to summarize it for us a little bit because this was a show that played at the new york fringe festival and played in la and new york and sold out audiences and and when i say sobbing i mean i'm talking full body heaves like such an incredible like one of the best pieces of theater i've ever seen so cathartic just summarize just kind of the premise of the show thank you maddie i'm sorry how an apologist became an animal activist so basically just the story of um, I could never come on stage and just be like, hi, me, that 
even though I just talked about my family for like 10 minutes straight. So what I did was play 16 characters interacting with each other, like a family table scene, etc. And it's really a story about how I was a raging bulimic and then adopted a dog. And, you know, when you're a middle child bulimic who doesn't feel like you can be yourself and you have very few people in your life who show that you can be, but you see that they're ostracized, you somehow like the subconscious knows like, oh, so like I have to subscribe to what the role is in order for me not to lose everyone. And that quickly just made me people pleaser, apologist, conforming, diplomatic. I gained your love because you needed me. So that meant I was there for you. And so I didn't like to make waves and I didn't like to pick sides. And then I met Ophelia and I couldn't be a bulimic because I couldn't be sick because I had to take care of her and taking care of her meant more than my gene size. Nothing else ever did. Not, Not that I didn't love my family and friends. She was just a divine being and and I believe that that's what dogs are. Um, but I'll get into that. But my show is really how loving Ophelia sort of opened my eyes to getting involved in the animal shelter and getting involved in the world of animals overall. I'm a very extreme person, sort of a black and white thinker. And so it's been a long road of just being like, um, how do I do this and still live? You know, like I can't be all animal rights. I'm married. I have kids. You know, sometimes we travel and I eat a muffin from Starbucks and it's not vegan and it's just a muffin. You know, it's like that sort of push pull, that show was sort of the beginning of it and how I found my strength and how I found my way of being like, no, I think that that's wrong. And I think this is right. Uh, This being not necessarily me, but Ophelia. And so that's what my show was about and how I drew lines with my family how I drew boundaries, how I be, how I recovered. And now I write a lot about that kind of stuff because I would never encourage somebody to keep a dog that isn't the right fit for them. And I do think that sometimes dogs need to be rehomed. And I do think that there is humane euthanasia. And I do think that there are poor fits. And I also think that whoever you are, a dog called to you and you picked that dog and they came into your life and your home and the place where they trigger you and upset you and challenge you, that's exactly where you need to be triggered and challenged. And they're taking you there. That's exactly where you need to work. Even if at the end of the journey, that dog and you are not a match. That doesn't matter. The end isn't what matters. It's not about now we live happily ever after. Now my dog and I have a bond. Now I rehome this dog. That's irrelevant. It's the going through every day, those little choices you make, And then they add up and then something happened there. And so Ophelia did that for me. I certainly didn't adopt her thinking she was going to be my idea of higher power (laughs) or her love would be what could make me well. But now I feel like that's dogs in general. I think we don't want to see the things we don't want to see, but I think that they take us right there. And I think it's on purpose and I think it's divine. And I think it should be spiritual. So that show was kind of the beginning of understanding what they meant in my life. Well, I'm tearing up hearing you describe it. So I uh, I would imagine that it would have been an actual mess in the audience, like an actual mess for someone else to clean up with products. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you.
What was the role that you were expected to play within your family? That's such a good question. Now you are also taking me right there. (laughs) The role that I'm expected to play in my family is still the accommodating one. So funny, sweet. When someone asks something of me, the answer is yes. And till this day, when a need comes up in me, I resent you for making me feel like I have a need because now I have to tell you and that is so uncomfortable for me. So I still like have to work through that, but that's really, I think the role that I was shoved to play, it was not intentional. It wasn't like people were, you know, Machiavellian trying to come up with my role, but that's kind of what it felt like. You know, I didn't cause problems. I was smart. I was funny. Great. And then it was like, I got love by, would you go pick up? Yes. I got you. Thank you. Or I need to talk to you. It's three in the morning. My sister's calling me. Yes. I wake up. I'm there. So basically codependent, like the person who can just blur those lines completely and merge is the role that I think I was supposed to play. And what's interesting is I believe, it's just my belief, that when there's an eating disorder in a family, you can send that kid to therapy and let that kid get help. And I'm not saying that that doesn't work. I am saying that I think it's a family problem. For me, speaking from experience, I think my eating disorder probably wouldn't have been such a huge, like, just nails I was swallowing all the time. Just this constant, just waking up in terror, like, what am I going to eat? How am I going to do this today? I don't know if that would have gone on through college, you know, from age 11 to 25, had it not been a family issue where everybody sits down and is like, what do we all need to do? How do we all work on this? That I think for me would have been very healing, but then I wouldn't have found dogs. So I don't regret it at all. Right. Yeah. So let's talk about the podcast. It's called The Animal That Changed You. And you've put a ton of episodes out at this point. I don't even know how many. Yes. And you've had, I mean, the guests you've had coming in to talk about animals and how they've changed them, like Casey Wilson and June Diane Raphael and the Sklar brothers and Rory Scovel and Michaela Watkins. Me, no big deal. Our friend uh, Renee Colvert's been on the show. Uh, the list Moby. goes on and on. Moby was Moby. just there. Moby. He was really nice and funny. Wow. I can't wait to hear that one. So just talk a little bit about like the origin story of the show. Guys, so selfish. Ophelia, 17. She was like 16-ish around that time. Kidneys were going downhill. Just merely a selfish act. I really was like, am I going to relapse? I was truly like, what's going to happen to me when she goes? Like I I took for granted all these years of wellness because she was just, she was my constant. She was my home. She was my sort of my refuge. Even when my family drives me crazy, it's like, oh, sink into Ophelia. I just started to get really scared. And so I didn't know what to do, but talk to other people. That was it. I was like, I guess I'm going to have to ask other people about the animals they love and why. And maybe they'll give me some insight. And so that's how the podcast really started. And I've now become addicted to talking to people. And it's called The Animal That Changed You, 
not me, precisely because of that. I really like to hear other people's stories, but the animals that change them, whether that means I just love this one animal or whether it means because of this one animal, all these other things happened. And I, I have, I don't want to say worked so hard, but opened my own mindfulness, I guess, my own self so that it's like, I don't care where you fall in the spectrum. I really don't. I, my husband's not a vegetarian and I don't judge him for it. I think if people can identify with loving an animal, then they'll lean in a little more. And I'm way more interested in the leaning in than I am in telling them it has to be this way. So that's what we do. And now I have a co-host, Jenny Franz, who's yes. the funniest person, biggest heart. Uh, we talk a lot about codependency <laughs> as two Capricorns, uh, two Capricorn women, but she owns a dog rescue in Massachusetts and she saves dogs from Texas, a lot of street dogs. So it's just been really fun and it's evolving. And I don't know how you guys have had a podcast all these years because it's really, it's, it's a lot of things. It's a great thing, but also a lot of things. Sure. A lot of things. Sure. But then sometimes you get to, you know, talk to your favorite person and it's all worth yeah. it. You know, I was going to ask what percentage of these episodes end in tears, but that's obviously 100. So what percentage of these episodes begin in tears? <laughs> That's pretty high too, I, I would say. Yeah. Matt and Michaels is particularly tearful, I think, from the start, only because they was a dog that I felt that like huge hit of a soul from so soon, you know? And I love dogs and I spend time at the shelter, which is my real housewives. That's where I get yeah. that. You know what I mean? I go to the shelter and I'm just like, oof. That dog just threw you shade to another dog. I'm solely talking to the animals. But Faye was sort of, she just stood out. It was something, she was something different. She was a different, you know, you go to a vintage store and there's that one thing that stands, like, she was like, oh my God, she's been waiting all this for them and I'm seeing everything. And it was, I just wanted to talk about Faye. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, we never, I'm crying, you know, we never would have um, found her if it weren't for you. We never would have known how to give her what she needed if it weren't for you. And, you know, when we, we met in college, I should have said that earlier, Katya and I went to college together. We were in our first acting classes together. And she was also already in LA. She was my first friend in LA. She moved here earlier than I did. And this is totally unrelated, but you had just been in a, a Creed music video or no stained what was the band stained stained oh and this was no. when you know uh, uh, videos were videos and there was a whole storyline a lot of acting happening in this and i couldn't i mean so strange to be so starstruck by a friend oh to just God. be like i can she will she still talk to me like she's reached a level of celebrity that i can't relate to which you surpassed so fast. It definitely didn't. But are you comfortable revealing this the stained song for which you were in a video? Oh yes, please. For you. For you. For you. And not to totally full circle and and uh, be creepy, but Dave, I was mm -hmm. in line at the MTV 1997 oh, yes. MTV VJ auditions. Okay. Which you were. Yes. And I was standing behind Jesse. Oh my God. So I met him and we sort of became friendly. Sure. And then we would go visit him. And so I met you somewhere along the line in 1997 oh, nice. in New York City. 
Oh, wow. And you were very wow. kind. Oh, good. You were, I good. thought, talk about starstruck. I was like, oh my God, he got the BJ thing. <laughs> like, I was Well, I out. didn't. I mean. Mm, he, he didn't, but then he did. Then he really did. Well, it, it, all, it all worked out. So you were there in the middle of the night. We got there like like at 11 p.m. and were there all night long till the next day. Or wow. 8 p.m. Yeah. And well, we spent the night there. Yeah, I showed up at like 4 and I was 168th. And Jesse was ahead of me. Jesse was a couple like snaky, you know, amusement park curves ahead of me in the line. I'm wondering then what time we did arrive there, because if you got there at four and we were right behind him, I must have got, did I not go to school that day? I guess I didn't. I guess I didn't go to school. Maybe. I was in and out by nine, I think. Oh, okay. We we were there like in the night. So I'm wondering if we were there and then stayed. I was definitely there in the night. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think not many people would have shown that kind of conviction, you know, because definitely like at a normal time, many, many people started showing up, but it was it was kind of just the diehards for a few hours there. Wow. Yeah. Holy that cow. That is full circle. What did you wear? I remember wearing a very long black pea coat, which was just not a great choice. It was like a trench coat. Mm. Did you have your short spiky hair at the I time? had my short red spiky hair like a Keebler elf. Short red spiky oh, hair. Yeah. So good. Oh my God. Poor, more poor choices. Do you ever, as an adult, look at your life and just go like, this is the summation of the choices I've made and feel so much doom? <laughs> just like, wow. I mean, I love my life most of the time, mm-hmm. but sometimes mm-hmm. I'll be doing a random thing, like hitting the garage door button closed, and I'll just be like, this is what happens when you make the choices that I've made. This is mm-hmm. it. This is it. This is what you get. Just this doom. So depressing. I promise I love my life. I'm just saying that. that I, know, I know you do. That hits yeah, me sometimes. Listen. Yeah. <laughs> no, they're, they're, they're difficult moments. They're difficult gro- garage door moments <laughs> in every dark garage door nights of the soul for all of us. But yeah, ultimately, though, everything got you where you are, yeah. which, is, which is a beautiful thing. Yeah. Which is married to a, a very, very cute man named Eric. Well, it's wonderful. Tell people a little bit about that love story. How, how did you meet? Oh, on J-Day. I was a professional non-Jewish dater. I took that job very seriously. Preferred men with Christ in the name, like Christian, <laughs> maybe Jesus, whatever. Any way that I could just go away from Judaism. And then my parents said, it feels like you're doing it on purpose which I was. And then they asked me to do J-Date for one month. And I did, and I met Eric, and he's agnostic. So really, the joke is on them. Yeah, (laughs) but everybody got what they wanted, basically. Everybody, they got the last name. Yeah. What is that about? Love them, but what is that about? But he's the best. He's a comfy chair. Everyone can just sink right in. I mean, really just like the old ladies in my neighborhood are like, knock on my door just to hang out with Eric, just to talk to Eric. He's just a good person. And would do every single thing in my life over again, the exact same way, not change a thing to end up as the mother of the two monsters that I belong to, most wonderful fireballs in the world. So yeah, it's me and him and two daughters and a rotating cast of animals. How many dogs are currently in? Because you're always fostering. So what is the current status? Right now, it's just Wally. He was our 65th foster and now our forever. And he's a big gray pit bull who is really just... Talk about still learning. I didn't know I had 
you know, worry, even me, all these years, I started volunteering in 2007 at South LA Animal Shelter. Now I'm at the Austin Animal Center. And I didn't know that I still had my ideas about big pit bulls. I've, I've had big pit bulls, but not this. He's nine. I, I usually, when we have adopted or fostered bigger pits, they've been like 11, 12, sort of decrepit. <laughs> I like them like that. They're kind of really like a moving pillow vibe. But mm-hmm. Wally's a very strong buck. He's taught me a lot about my limitations and he's taught me a lot about my ideas and he's made me look at things differently and he's fantastic. I mean, goes to doggy daycare. He takes it. He just, he has such a high threshold. It's quite amazing. I will tell you that our last foster number 66 had some resource guarding of me and I went deep into a resource guarding hole because she was like this little 50 pound beagle lab mix, loved her, great dog. She's in a new home, 13, and wouldn't let Wally come towards me and went after Wally and attacked him. He's 80 pounds. And there was a fight and it was awful. I couldn't separate them. But when I did, he was scraped up and she had nothing. And his mouth is the size of like a suburban. Right. His self-control was something that I couldn't get out of my head. So I've been taking a lot of courses on resource guarding. And my new theory is everything is resource guarding. Everything for everybody. Can you define that term? Yes, thank you. Resource guarding is, in, in terms of dogs, is when a dog guards an item or a thing with the mindset that it can be taken away. It's a scarcity mindset, for lack of a better uh, term, gotcha. or in order to simplify it. And different dogs have it about different things. Some dogs don't have it at all. Goldie, uh, my last foster, she resource guarded me, um, which makes sense because I was the the one who gave her all resources. But some dogs just do it about the water bowl or a chew toy or food. And I really think it's just a insecurity in motion. And I'm very curious about it being an answer for a lot of things. We resource guard, people resource guard, war is resource guarding. We resource guard our homes, our kids, our partners, everyone is resource guarding. So now I'm really thinking about abundance and what that means and how we, how do we live like that? Not only with our dogs, how do we live like that? Hmm. How do we help dogs by being that energy, being it? And it's also worth highlighting, like you said, that after that fight, you mentioned that the 50-pound beagle was not harmed by the 80-pound pit bull. And with dog nuts and rescue people, the stigma that exists around pitties and pit bull type breeds, you know, we understand that, but the general public still doesn't. Can you just talk about that a little bit? Yeah. I mean, there are some things that I'm learning every day from Wally, which is like, if I give him like a an indestructible Kong, he'll destroy it. If I give him a stuffy my kids no longer want, in like 20 seconds, it's snowing. They're stuffy. I mean, mm-hmm. his mouth, his jaw is quite strong. Very strong, not quite strong. And it is irrelevant to his temperament and it is irrelevant to his threshold. Those things are absolutely separate to me in terms of assessing a dog. So he has a very high threshold. Things don't set him off. And 
high threshold means it takes much longer for you to defend yourself. But every being in this world has the right to defend themselves, even an 80-pound pit bull. If a dog is going after him, he doesn't have to take it because he's a pit bull. He gets to defend himself. What's amazing to me about Wally is the amount of self-control that he has, the amount of restraint. And what's amazing about being a person who loves dogs is, and for me, it really always comes back to codependency. I would say that's my specialty is codependency with our animals because at some point, management or our control will fail us. At some point, something's going to happen with your dog and you're going to have to swallow the pill of acceptance that animals, dogs, the, the beings we love, the people we love come to this world to experience things that are beyond our control, the full range of emotions and experiences. We are not going to be able to prevent and control everything. So I wouldn't have known Wally's his inhibition, his ability to restrain, his ability to control himself had that fight not happened. I didn't want it to happen. I was doing everything I could for it to not happen. And yet, sometimes we learn because the things happen. So my point being, he doesn't know he has this enormous mouth and I set him up to succeed. And that's what dog love is to me. It is setting your dog up to succeed. And that can change. That is a responsive communication that is ongoing and should be reciprocated and it should be mutual. And your needs are very important, as important, equal to the dog's. That being said, that equality also means that how our dogs behave, how they act, their state of mind falls 50% on us. That behavior doesn't exist without our influence and the influence of their environment. And I am not blaming anyone, you know, would never say it's anyone's fault. It's like when someone talks to me about mutual funds and ETFs, I'm like, I don't know what you're talking about. It's a different language, you know? It's like, what? And that's what I think dog communication dog, body language, dog bonding can be. It can be just a different language that you sometimes need help navigating. And I feel honored and privileged every time I get to do that with somebody. We started this conversation, but you kind of calling on the homophiliacs to tell you if uh, the title of empowerment mentor for dog people Fits. But I think at this point, yeah, everybody, we're all I'm feeling sold. pretty, pretty I'm empowered sold. and Absolutely. very well mentored. And I'm going to pet the hell out of my dog right now. Just make sure he's being, you know, chill. Because if he's like all anxious and nervous and you're petting him, you're reinforcing that state of oh, mind. Oh, mm. okay. Give him that attention. Okay. One bit of a dog loving advice that I would give anyone and everyone in the world well, two. One, trust yourself. Mm-hmm. Trust yourself. You're the one in the relationship. You have the feedback loop with your dog. And two, whatever you focus on grows. Anything, everything with anyone, whatever you pay attention to will get bigger. So give them the love and attention when they're doing and being how you want. That's a very, very good piece of advice. Such sage advice. The podcast is called The Animal That Changed You. Uh, you can go to katyalitsky.com to learn more about Katya and the podcast and her writing and so much more. Katya, we love you. Thank you so much for being Katya, here. I'm so Thank you so much for having me. I'm really grateful. Thank you for being here.